Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Collective Insights and the work we do at Neurohacker Collective is made possible from the support of our community and the sales of our product, Qualia. Qualia is a comprehensive mental enhancement supplement designed to improve focus, mood, and flow state. Learn more about Qualia at neurohacker.com and use coupon code Collective Insights for $20 off your first order. All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Collective Insights podcast. Delighted to have you all here today and delighted to have the guests with us that we have. We have Dr. Jeffrey Martin and Nicole Bradford, who are the co-founders of the Transformative Technology Lab and the Transformative Technology Conference that explores the whole space of what transformative technology is in terms of physical technologies, psychological, psycho-spiritual technologies that can enhance people's subjective state, their capacities, very deeply connected to uh, you know, the space of neurohacking that we explore here at Neurohacker Collective. We've appreciated their work from afar and you know, made for some time and made friends and very happy to have them here. Uh, part of the Transformative Technology Labs and actually the genesis of it, as I understand, is something they developed called the Finder's Course, which is a uh, novel approach to, and you know they'll tell us more about it, but to meditation, to personal development, to the development of higher states and stages of consciousness and more persistent higher states. So really interesting topics that are ranging from things closer to meditation to things closer to neurotech and the whole space in between. So Jeffrey, Nicole, thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. So lots of questions. Let's start with origin. My understanding is that the, the what we call the transformative tech lab and conference and that whole kind of universe y'all are creating emerged out of the work in the finders course. Um, can you talk about what the finders course is? What got you started in that area of research and kind of why it was worth developing? What's novel about it? Sure. So it actually all goes back about 12 years now. Uh, 12 years ago, I was uh, sort of tech, business, um, media type person who had had, uh, I think, quite a bit of success over the years. And thought it was sort of unhappy. I wasn't that, I just wasn't that happy despite all of the success, right? I wasn't miserable or, you know, totally depressed or something like that. But it just really seemed like I could be a lot happier, and there were a lot of other people that were a lot happier than I was. And given how hard I was working and how hard I had worked, and sort of I had all these stories around myself and whatever uh, at the time, you know, it just seemed like I needed to make a change because clearly more of the same wasn't going to increase my quality of life any more than it already had. And so uh, I did that. I basically left everything that I was doing and I went back to school. I went uh, to California Institute of Integral Studies and started a PhD program there. Before that, I had basically a master's degree in management and a master's degree in computing, um, but I'd never gone to the PhD level. So I decided, I looked around and I decided uh, CIS was the place because they had a transdisciplinary scholarship program that was really cutting edge. And the only other place that I could see to get that was in Europe. And I didn't really want to go to Europe uh, to live, to get a PhD. And then I picked up psychology and neuroscience. About a year or two into that program at CIS, I realized that psychology and neuroscience was missing, and so I went to Harvard on the other coast 
at the same time and picked up the psychology and neuroscience stuff. And I was really trying to figure out a way to, you know, get happier and to sort of maximize my day-to-day, moment-to-moment well-being. Um, so my strategy was actually quite simple. Find the happiest people, study them with the best tools you can possibly study them with, and then see if something emerges that allows you to actually become one of them. Um, very simple, straightforward, you know, you can totally see my business roots and algorithmic computer roots and stuff like that in that decision tree, right? And that's exactly what that path has been ever since then. And so um, it started off by trying to figure out who those people were. And there were three main populations of interest that I eventually narrowed down to just one. And those are people who have that sense of a higher state, they're often called higher states or stages or levels or whatever of consciousness, um, they, they definitely, you know, anyone who's ever heard any of these people talk, they certainly represent themselves as like the happiest, most contented, sort of optimum way of being a human being out there. And so um, I started to dig into that. And I really, frankly, felt at the beginning that that was probably just self-deception on their part. I really sort of assumed that once I turned a scientific lens on them that what I would find is that that wasn't true, you know, that they were self-deceiving, whatever else, but it actually did turn out to be true. They did turn out to score very high on measures of well-being, uh, very, you know, low in depression, virtually no depression, no anxiety. Um, And so they really did seem to be who they said they were when you threw these various academic gold standard measures at them. And so the next question was really, who are they really? And so we went around and did a bunch of interviews with quite a few of these people. And the the shortcut this, it basically wound up with giving us a classification system or a category system. In other words, when I met someone and they were clearly part of this population, I could determine sort of what type of person they were within it. And then that allows you to sort them for additional science, like additional neuroscience stuff, like being able to do EEG on them or refer them to people who are doing fMRI studies and stuff like that and start to get a picture. You know, I was coming from a technology background, right? And so my view was that this was going to be solved by technology and you just needed more and more and more data in order to solve that. And some of the data that was very handy to have would, you know, was the neuroimaging data. I thought, you know, there's going to be something different in their brains and we can find out what that is and then we can probably engineer our way to that using some sort of technology, and that'll be that. And, you know, in a couple of years, I'll have this whole thing wrapped up. Uh, it's 12 years later, right? We're still working on it, so I don't exactly have a Ray Kurzweilian timeline, unfortunately. Um, but a huge amount of progress has been made. And so what happened was the day came when we got some of the early neuroscience studies back, and we realized that what was changing was actually very deep in the brain, And at the time, it was too deep for existing technology to really tickle. Um, I mean, you could do it in a a very high-end lab, but that wasn't going to be accessible to most people. And so um, it really threw a wrench in the whole trajectory that I was on. Everything was going according to plan until the first, you know, the first brain scans came back or whatever. And at that point, um, the effort sort of forked in two directions. And we realized we couldn't go much further with data collection without being able to get people pre and post. In other words, we had to be able to tell who someone was before they were in these, you know, sort of so-called higher levels of consciousness and who they were after to be able to subtract out the before from after to see what it was that actually changed. Because up until that point, we could only ask people 
you know, who were, who you, were you before or what do you think you were like before or whatever? Well, I mean, you know, Daniel, if I ask you, like, who were you 23 years ago? Can you tell me exactly what you were thinking and feeling? And, you know, can you give me a snapshot? of? I mean, it's been averaged out so many times in your brain and changed so many times in your brain. Who can do that, right? Um, and so that pre-data we knew was never really believable. So we had to go get real pre-data. And we started in the way you would suspect, which is by looking at the methods that were widely available, mainstream meditation methods and stuff like that. Uh, but none of them had enough reliability that you could invest thousands of dollars per subject and, you know, guarantee that you are going to get a pre-post. And so, you know, it's kind of crappy to spend $2,000 getting pre-data collection on people and then not have anything happen to them. You have to spend another 2000 on another person, another 2000 on another person, and then get one in 10 or one in 20 or one in 100, or maybe even if you're lucky, one in 1,000, right? Um, and so we had to, the finder's course essentially was born of necessity. It was born of um, the need to have a protocol that allowed us to measure people pre and post and to actually determine what changed. And uh, because the technology wasn't there and it looked like it could be 5, 10, even 15 years, before the sufficient technology was ready to be able to use, um, we did sort of the next logical thing, which was we went back to all of the data that we had collected on the roughly 1,200 people who were in what we call persistent non-symbolic experience, that's just our word, PNSE, um, for these higher levels of consciousness, you can call it enlightenment or non-duality or persistent mystical states or unitive consciousness or plateau experience if you're into Maslow or whatever. I don't really care what you call it. Well, I'll probably just accidentally, if nothing else, call it PNSE. I may try to intentionally use other terms, but sooner or later that's going to slip in to the conversation. So these, so, so these higher levels of consciousness essentially um, needed to be measured before and after. And we went back to the people that we'd originally researched. Um, and in their data, we'd actually asked them, I mean, you would think, like, why wouldn't you have looked at this question earlier? But again, we had a technological orientation. We'd actually ask them, hey, what worked for you? <laughs> but we'd never actually bothered to look at that answer because I thought those answers were probably going to be incorrect or biased in some way and just not that helpful. And we were just going to crack it with, you know, zapping the brain or whatever it was that we were going to find worked. Um, so we wound up going back to that question and we wound up sorting that data and we wound up working through, our, through that data. Uh, and we had this incredibly diverse sample of amazing people all over the world, essentially that had answered that question. And from that, we were able to construct, kind of experiment and iterate our, to, our way to and construct a protocol uh, that wound up working for about 70% of people that use it. Um, and that is absolutely enough to invest money in for research funds, because even at that point, the 30% of people that don't get there, they're sort of a useful contrast group, you know? You can see what's different in their data between the people that did transition and the people that didn't transition. So that's the, that's the finder's course experiment, um, and we still run those periodically. We run probably about half a dozen of them a year, a year or so um, moving forward. Um, and we still use them to collect data, and we still change the measures that we give people, and we still change the data collection. Sometimes we collect physiological data like brainwaves or EEG data, or like EEG data from brainwaves or GSR data from the skin, uh, which basically measures like electrical resistance in the skin or heart rate or stuff like that. More often, we measure them psychologically, and so we want to see what changes in terms of their psychological beliefs or their personality traits or um, whatever. And so that, that project basically just continues to go and continues to run. And, it, you know, 
has impact on a lot of people's lives as follow-on projects that have become necessary from that because um, you know after you this is a pretty profound transition in someone's life to these extraordinary states of well-being and they require a transition and so we've also had to research how to help people adjust to them how to optimally sort of fit them into your life moving forward after the transition all of that so our primary research right now is mostly around that it's mostly around um, how to help people with the things that arise um, post transition to really sort of integrate it in and get the most out of their life so all of that stream continues to go on and then on the other side is the transformative technology side which is we've continued down this path of continuing to try to find a way to engineer this to make it even more you know rapid and reliable and safe right now it takes about four months to complete the protocol now, if you get really lucky, you might have a transition in the first week of the protocol, but basically it's somewhere between week one and four months or so um, if you're going to be in that 70% but transition. And all of our data suggests that it can be a lot faster than that because if you think about the people that transition in the first week, that simply suggests that they're matched up to what we're doing in that first week, right? That matching process is one of our primary findings. And so... A lot of what we do in the finders course is we basically try to help you match up and find the method that works for you. And we do it in a very sophisticated sort of cocktail kind of way. But once you hit the week that has your method, essentially you're going to transition. So what that suggests to us is that you ought to be able to just transition in a week. It shouldn't take four months. Um, and we think that probably that's going to depend on technology still. So we continued this other branch that was originally called, um, you know, Enlightenment engineering, and then we renamed it PNSE engineering because it didn't attract a lot of people that wanted to work on it. it was Enlightenment engineering, um, and you know then nobody really knew what PNSE engineering was, so that didn't really attract a lot of people either. So there was a big brainstorm around what to call it next, and wound up um, we wound up calling it, um, you know, by the terms that have since become popular with the conference and the lab and whatever else. And so you know it's the transformative technology space. At this point, so the Transformative Technology Conference, the Transformative Technology Lab, and so on and so forth, um, which that word actually comes from um, the dissertation or the, the the PhD that I got at CIS. It was in a discipline called Transformative Studies, uh, and so it all traces back to that research. Um, and so then, what's happened over time is um, that space has really grown. And there's people like me in it that, whose primary focus is really still trying to figure out this PNSE thing and how you engineer that. Um, but it increasingly then became about technology and well-being and sort of the intersection of technology and well-being and how to engineer technology and well-being. And this year, I'd say we're even going beyond the well-being notion to notions of human thriving and stuff like that. So when you see the conference tagline for this year, you probably notice the word thriving um, has entered into it and whatnot. Uh, and so now it's very broad and it deals with, you know, any technology um, that falls into this area, really, um, anywhere in the world. And it is a global thing. It's, it's absolutely spread all over the world. So <clears throat> you said maybe a dozen things that I want to come back and double click on from what happiness means in the definition to what transformation means, how discrete that is, how permanent it is, et cetera, what integration looks like, 
what are the set of things that are included that people might select between to find out what is their thing. Like so much fascinating stuff. Your story with regard to your path into it, um, you know, successful, not happy, want to explore happiness. That makes sense. Not everybody explores it as, as deeply as you did, but that makes sense. Um, but then the process of like, okay, so I assume that everyone who says they're happy is full of shit. So let's start off with data. We don't get the EEG data that makes perfect sense. Let's actually ask the people what worked for them. It's, it's a fun story. I, mean, I, I, I dig it a lot. Before I come back to the, um, the, some of the specifics, Nicole, I want to ask, I know you had a, a very different but also kind of related story of a world that you were working in and then certain things that, you know, were interesting for you personally that led you into this work. Would you, um, would you just share kind of at a high level, what brought you into working in uh, transformative tech and yeah. Unmute first, please. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So I was in video games. I was a senior executive in video games and I had been in marketing for many years in games, global corporate strategy, I actually worked on the Vivendi acquisition of Activision um, and was on the deal team for that, reporting directly to the CEO for several years. And then after that deal was announced, I didn't want to do corporate integration. So I went to China and became the head of operations for Blizzard Entertainment um, and ultimately had World of Warcraft StarCraft, um, I had, I managed the entire back end, all of the technical functions, and because I have a marketing and strategy background and global brand expertise, I also did go to market. So, you know, one of the few people in the world who is, who has managed a, you know, who has operated a large implementation of one of the largest MMOs in the world, um, but also having done back end and front end, which makes me, it's a pretty rare combination. Um, along that time, I had started to meditate or trying to learn to meditate because I had, you know, I thought so much, like I thought all the time. The only time I wasn't thinking is if I was asleep and then I was actually thinking. And I just had this sense that it was wearing me out. And so I, you know, wanted to learn to meditate because I heard that that would make that better, um, that I could, um, you know, find more rest in my life. And um, so I started with a couple of things. I was a classic case of not being properly fit because I could meditate and then an hour later get stressed again. Um, so I, you know, I call some of my early stuff relaxing on pillow, which is much different than meditation. And so eventually I found my way to a Vipassana course. And I went there because some friends went there. Um, again, there was like no, I found you know, I found my way to it the way most people find their way to techniques. Recommendation of a friend, a book that they read. It was so random. There was so much luck involved. Um, and so I went to this Goenka class in southern Japan. It was about an hour and a half outside of Kyoto. And I had, um, I had, my, I had a, a profound shift. I had my first awakening. Um, and it was dramatic. Um, and it was hard to understand what happened. It was so intense. And um, on the other side of that, um, I walked out of there feeling a profound sense of happiness, like happier than I'd ever been, and a profound sense of fearlessness, 
Um, and, you know, in both cases, anyone who had looked at my life would have thought that I was both happy and fearless. And, um, you know, in hindsight, I realized that I was actually optimistic. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a kind of fearlessness that comes from not having a, you know, a tremendous amount of inner chatter. And that's the fearlessness that, you know, I ended up with. And it was just so different than my life before um, in terms of how I was experiencing like the day-to-day -day ex experience of my life um, that I was really deeply curious as to what happened. I didn't know what happened. I really didn't have anyone who could explain to me what happened. Um, I didn't really have anyone to talk to about what happened. Um, my friends who'd gone to the exact same retreat center did not have the same effect. You know, now I know it's because it was just not the right fit for them. But, you know, they couldn't help me understand what happened. Um, the teacher there, um, you know, she wasn't with me afterwards, so she couldn't explain to me what happened. So I just needed to know what happened. And so a mutual friend, when I was, I had rotated to Hong Kong to do regional operations and came across a mutual friend and um, told him what happened. And, um, and that I wanted to use technology to make this same experience available to all, um, you know, to make happy and fearlessness available to all because it was so amazing. And he said, well, you know, there's this guy that you should talk to um, who's interested in doing the same thing. And so we introduced Jeffrey and I, and uh, we talked back and forth uh, via Skype. And then I came to the U.S., um, that uh, I came to the U.S. for Burning Man, and uh, we talked for, our first meeting was 10 hours long, and we just talked the entire time, and at the end of it, uh, we decided to work together on the course and the lab and the movement, and so now, here we are four years later with a conference that last year got over 600 people, um, uh, you know, a data set that is proving to be pretty extraordinary, um, and a course that has um, fundamentally changed the lives of hundreds of people. So why you two make a good team to be able to advance this seems obvious, and it's neat to see how those stories intersected. Um, so before we get into what are the things that are included, what are the things that you chose to include as possible good fits versus not, um, and how do you determine that? A term that you both used that I think obviously resonates with everyone was you both used the term happiness and something that we've actually discussed on the show with uh, some uh, other people in the meditation or psychology space is uh, how ambiguous a term that is and how many different synonyms that it points to that are neurochemically, computationally, psychologically different. Um, you have a uh, very roughly, and I'm oversimplifying grossly here, a kind of Eastern happiness that is more contentment, serenity. It's more serotoninergic. It's more associated with uh, in the moment. You have a kind of passion, excitement, happiness that is much more of Western model that is more dopaminergic in orientation. Um, so when you're talking about happier, I'm curious to hear from both of you, uh, what does that mean? And when you saw that there were people that were happier in the exploration, what did that mean? Well, I'll just, uh, to sort of like tee it up for, for Jeffrey or to get my point of view out of the way, I use the word happy because it's 
a fast way for people to understand which stadium you're talking about. But the sections in the stadium actually include uh, meaning, connection, belonging, um, you know, a deep sense of contentment. Um, so I definitely understand the, um, the flaws with the word happy, um, especially how it shows up in sort of like Western literature and Western psychology, Western pop psychology um, is actually probably the better word to say. Um, and so for me, it's just a, it's just a shorthand uh, for all of those deeper things, uh, which Jeffrey will go on to define. <laughs> you can tell we've worked together for a long time. Yeah, I think it's, that's, you're right, right? There's so much in the happiness space that's just kind of crazy. Um, and there's lots of people out there fighting over what happiness is or what well-being is and um, blah, blah, blah. I think from the standpoint of our research, um, it's probably more appropriate to take your initial classifications between East and West rather than the 400 different ways of defining happiness, 400 being probably an underestimate um, within the academic literature of, you know, Western science. Um, essentially, I think of it this way. Um, what I was fundamentally, I now realize, I didn't know it at the time, but what I was fundamentally looking to solve as a problem in myself was ultimately just an underlying sense of discontentment. And what had never actually occurred to me before is that everybody has that same discontentment. Now, you know, I, I, in the mid-90s, um, I ran a division of one of the world's, of basically the world's first and largest advertising conglomerate. And so, and I've made hundreds of commercials and things like that, right? And so, you would think that someone with that background would have had it done on them that it was that the, that the one thing that they were able to count on in the entire human population was that everybody was discontent in some way, right? And that when your entire job is to fuel, is to take that little discontentment and fuel it and then convince them that, you know, a Ford car is what they need to solve that. Um, but for whatever reason, that hadn't actually dawned on me as of 12 years ago or so. And um, so I, I frame it in a very different way, I think, than the rest of the academic world really looks at it. That's not to say we don't use all of their happiness measures because we do, or, you know, write about it that way, talk about it that way, you know. We certainly, I certainly do all of that. I mean, I interface all the time with the academic community, with the various academic communities that intersect with our space. It includes all of those and more. But at a meta level, I think there's, a, there's another way to look at this. And it's that um, I think, you know, mostly we're, we're genetically influenced beings, it seems. And so our genome is old. The genome does not change that much, right? Epigenetics, we know, you know, can change while we're having this conversation or whatever, much less generation to generation. But the core genome itself, it's pretty darn old. And so if you, you know, Tony Robbins likes to say, you know, you're, you're a product of your two million year old genome or whatever, right? Other people back it down to a million year old genome, right? Even if you just say, well, let's say it's 100,000 years that the thing hasn't materially changed that much. And where were humans 100,000 years ago? I mean, you know, what was the lifestyle like of humanoid type sort of creatures 100,000 years ago? I would argue it was probably pretty crappy. Probably some people were fortunate 
live on the coasts in abundance and only get wiped out by the occasional tsunami or something. Um, but for a lot of people, you know, you're at the bottom of the food chain, right? You get a little cut on your finger and that thing can become infected. And no matter how many different gods you pray and sacrifice to, it can kill you. Or, uh, you know, you can live in a caloric restricted area where you're starving before you make it to the next berry bush. Or, you know, there's all sorts of wild animals that you're definitely not at the top of the food chain of uh, that could tear you, you know, limb from limb. You can lose your life giving birth. You, I mean, it's just, a, it was a hostile, hostile environment. And I think that's largely what we're programmed for. And you see that reflected in mainstream psychology. And so what most of psychology studies is a form of human, of sort of normal human consciousness that is really not that happy. Uh, the vast majority of publications, and I, I don't know what the current ratio is, but it's always an enormous ratio, um, are, you know, the vast majority of publications are all about discontentment and unhappiness and psychopathology and um, whatever else. And there's a tiny little bit of articles that are on the human flourishing um, side. I don't, think that's a, I don't think that's somehow surprising to us because we're programmed for that. And so, and the global advertising industry that I once want, that I was once at the heart of, um, absolutely shoves that and uses that and shoves stuff down your throat with it every day. And so, what we're really talking about when we talk about what we research is a fundamental shift away from that. Um, you know, people that are into genes um, will talk about you know nature conducting its experiments and things like that. And so, I don't think it's that surprising that starting a few thousand years ago, um, you start to see some different things showing up in human consciousness, whether you think about Buddha or whoever, um, clearly in little pockets, in little individuals here and there, something starts to go on that suggests that there's another way. Um, and so now we're at a point where many, many more people have access to that than have ever had in, in any other point in history, possibly. Uh, of course, we don't know how pervasive those teachings were a zillion years ago before writing or whatever, but just assuming since we're not already, since that's not all of our default state of culture and psychology, and, you know, we're instead being, you know, sold stuff by the advertising industry poking at our discontentment, we can assume a certain amount of unsuccessfulness for that over the course of human history. And it, now we're at a point where that tide seems to be possible to turn and change. Now, it doesn't make sense for people to have deep-seated discontentment, uh, fear, worry, be really at the heart or at the core or form the baseline foundation of their psychology. Um, you know, today I'm in New Mexico. I'm actually filming this from the University of New Mexico. I'm here with some research collaborators on the brain stimulation side of the fence. Um, these are University of New Mexico dissertations behind me <laughs> on the shelves. You know, zillions of years of effort <laughs> are on the wall behind me, right? Um, but, I mean, what am I worried about, right? Am I going to starve today? Is there any chance at all that I'm going to starve today? No. What am I spending my day doing? I'm spending my day trying to not have more chocolate, right? I'm, spending, I'm consciously trying to restrict my caloric intake. Um, rather than enjoy the pleasure of the chocolate that's sitting roughly three feet away from me, tormenting me during this interview. I'm just kidding. But you get the idea, right? Is there some wild animal going to rush in here and rip my arm off? If I cut my finger, I'm in the middle of a hospital complex. Do I expect many things can happen to me today? They're going to take me out health-wise. It's a completely different environment, right? So 
why is it that human consciousness has not caught up to that? Why is it that our foundational lens that we experience the world through has not caught up to the fact that for most of us, at least in the developed West and the developed East, um, are in a fundamentally safe and abundant life? Uh, and it, it, we don't have to constantly be on guard. Our system doesn't have to constantly be producing this discontent. And that was the main thing that had changed in the people uh, in our first study. The main thing that had shifted for them is that they had had some profound shift in their psychological baseline, away from those things like fear and worry and discontentment and all of that, and towards a sense that things were fundamentally okay. Uh, because things are fundamentally okay. You know, I'm not saying that there aren't humans still foraging in a dangerous environment in the Brazilian rainforest or something, in a, you know, in a tra very traditional culture or something like that. Certainly there's a lot of different lifestyles on this earth. But for everybody who hears this podcast, things are pretty much okay. They're not going to starve. They're not going to work. The wild animals are going to rip them to shreds anytime soon, probably, um, and so on and so forth. And so why is it that our default state of consciousness is not in sync with how we actually experience the modern world? You know, instead, we have all of these processes running in us from who knows how many hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago. And they don't make any sense. And so when your boss looks across the table at you and says, you're fired, now these processes are still in play, right? And it feels like a tiger is ripping your arm off. Or your spouse looks across the table at you and says, you know, I'm done here. I'm leaving you. You know, it feels like you're dying. It feels like there's this mortal threat to you because these circuits are still there and they're still active. And some content is going to fill them. They're not going to go unfilled in their content. And so these things that really... There may be significant life events, but they're not life-threatening. So why do they feel so life-threatening? And so really, the, our primary finding in how I think about well-being is mostly in a sh shift away from um, that traditional foundation that served humans incredibly well for who knows how many millennia, right? Um, so one that's a lot more in sync with living a, a, just an amazing life and really being able to take advantage of all that life has to offer you um, in this present moment. I think, in a, you know, just to summarize it with another simple metaphor, um, there is a guy named Roger Bannister who probably most of your viewers have heard about, right? Uh, and Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. And up until the time when he broke the four-minute mile, it was just widely believed that humans could never run that fast. They could, you know, they just couldn't break that, right? And so all of the world's greatest doctors and physiologists and professors and whatever else uh, basically believed that. And all of the runners kept getting closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to that four-minute mile, right? Um, closer and closer to, the, to what they believe was the optimum human potential for how fast a human being could run. And then Roger Bannister comes along, Sir Roger now, who actually went on to become an academic and who says that breaking the four-minute mile was one of the least significant things that he's done if you look at his track record and whatnot over time. He's still alive as we make this. Uh, at least I believe he is. I checked a few months ago. Um, you know, he comes along and he breaks that four-minute mile barrier and it completely changes what people believe are possible for the potential of human physiology. And I believe that basically our work and work like ours is doing the exact same thing for human psychology. That there's this belief in the... In the in the vast majority of the human psychology world um, around what the true limits are of human consciousness and human well-being and whatever else. And we're just showing that to be 
the same thing as the four-minute mile. Um, there's this whole other, you know, phase that there's this whole other transition that people can have. Um, and it changes everything for them. And even if they were a really happy person before that transition, before that base state changes, they could have been, they could have said, I am, the, I am such an incredibly happy person. I can't imagine how life can be. You know, one of our, one of our subjects in the pilot, in the very first finder's course pilot, had that. I picked two very happy people, two normal people, and two super, like, suicidally depressed people for the pilot, six people. Um, because I had to be able to psychologically support them. You couldn't have a bunch of people, you know, just in case they all went crazy or something, and, you know, it's ethics and research and all that. Well, one of those happy people was the first person to transition. And when she transitioned, she basically said, how do I explain to my friends a difference between happy and between being really happy and just this whole other level of happiness and well-being that has opened up for me that I never imagined could exist? It's like my whole life I thought I've been this incredibly happy person. I'm like the happy person in the room. And now I realize that was nothing. So that's really sort of our take on these questions around happiness and well-being. Got it. So there is a bunch of discontent that has a thousand different flavors uh, that maybe has evolutionary origins or in whatever way is not actually adaptive or relevant today. And being able to decrease the uh, the source of discontent is obviously a starting place. <clears throat> now, then there's a lot of higher states and stages of, as you were mentioning, many various flavors of uh, belonging, connection, meaningfulness, uh, et cetera. But I think, I think everyone probably can connect to a decrease in discontent as being relevant. I will, um, I'll just share briefly. We, uh, here at the collective just finished doing some research on a structured literature review on uh, adult neurogenesis and, uh, synaptogenesis and, and connectomics. So what, what does all the research say and how neuroplastic, adult humans are compared to adult almost any other species. And so when you think about the regulatory mechanisms physiologically that regulate humans, we have these bottom-up mechanisms, which are genetics and not just our genes, but microbiome and viromic uh, omics, which are all basically code layer that's creating protein synthesis. You have that, right? And that's modulatable, as you mentioned, epigenetically by what we're experiencing. But then you have the top-down control systems that are taking information from the environment, from the whole system, processing it, and then controlling macrostructures, lots of cells together in tissues and organs. And the connectomics, I mean, there's a reason why humans are basically so inept for so long compared to uh, developmentally any other species. It takes us a year to walk. It takes most other animals minutes to walk is because since as technologists, we change our own environment so much one generation to the next, if we came in hardwired, we'd be screwed because we'd still be throwing spears rather than learning how to text and other stuff. So we have to actually be able to adapt to an environment that we are in ourselves changing rapidly through new technological innovation. So we come pretty not that hardwired, right? We come very kind of softwired to be able to shift stuff. So this is why even without changing the genome, you can change the connectome pretty radically have a top-down shift that in turn affects epigenetic expression, affects the bottom-up shift and expresses a, affects a whole cascade of regulatory changes. So, I mean, it is, it is awesome actually that that much intervention is possible because of the unique evolutionary adaptation that we are that makes us like our adaptive capacity is to be adaptive to every niche. 
right? Rather than just run fast or swim fast or deal with hot environments or slow environments. And so, um, yeah, beautiful. I'm, I'm curious. So Nicole, you talked about having this experience at Vipassana and that there was a shift that happened for you and you had other friends that went to Vipassana and they didn't have that shift and that you had been doing other meditation mechanisms that equated to just relax on pillow, but didn't actually shift your, your, uh, day-to-day experience all that much outside of meditation. And so the finders course, you guys are talking about this topic of fit. And Jeffrey, you mentioned earlier that within the people that describe themselves as less discontent, more content, more fulfilled, there were different typologies. So there wasn't like one typological expression of what happiness is. And then as you ask them what worked, I'm guessing you found that different things worked and that those different things that worked got incorporated into the finders course. And there's some process of identifying what is likely to work for someone. I, I don't know how much it is just purely empirical, have them try everything and see what they notice, or how much you've got certain kind of typological identifiers of biometrics or psychometrics that you've found correlate. And I don't know if you found that there are some methods, some psychological or spiritual methods that just don't work for anybody. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the content of what is actually, what are the things in the finder's course? Because what's so interesting, right, is that this is, it's like personalized medicine. You're actually giving a personalized approach to psychospiritual development, but an approach that is itself standardizable to how you personalize it. So um, what things got included, what things didn't get included, how do you assess what good fit is? I would love to hear a bit about that. Yeah, sure. And uh, let me just say, it's a good call on the brain networks connectivity and such because that's one of the things that stood out right away in the brain research when I talked about those deep regions in the brain that were difficult to get to with a brain zapper or whatever uh, very cleanly anyway um, a lot of it related to rewiring of networks in the brain and stuff like that so there are those sort of top-down reflections that you see in this population uh, so the, the structure of the the structure of the course itself um, really comes from, as I mentioned, the going back and querying people um, in, the, in the very first, basically in the first form that people filled out, you know, it was like, who are you, you know, what's your address, and you know, how old are you, and what's your education level, and literally on that page was what worked for you. Um, and so that wound up being an incredibly powerful sorting process. Because although there may be a zillion techniques out there, the reality is not many of them wound up on those pages. And so it was, it was useful to have a large population of people that could sort of distill down for you um, the greatest hits. And then it became, you know, but the greatest hits are different across different traditions. There are subtle changes. There are subtle differences in them. Um, and so, you know, one person's mantra meditation is not another person's mantra meditation. Um, and, you know, you go from different Buddhist schools have totally different views of that, much less than you add in something, some Hinduism or uh, whatever else, and then some, maybe some Jewish Kabbalistic mantra stuff or whatever else. And, it, and it's, it was actually, although simple, it was a relatively simple list of things that seemed to rise to the top. There was a lot of complexity in that list as well. And it was really sort of a question of how do you, how do you boil that down? So we mashed, you know, the methods are in some sense, um, very easy to discern. They've in many times they've risen to the top of, um, religions over time. 
Uh, and so, you know, something like a Theravada noting practice, for instance. Uh, you know, we have a version of a Theravada Buddhist noting practice that comes towards the end of the course. Um, but it's not, it's definitely not a traditional Theravada Buddhist noting practice. You know, it's been sort of informed by that conglomeration of research around those types of practices. Um, and that's actually one of the, it's one of the interesting things that happens with people that encounter the course is that sometimes they think to themselves, oh, well, I'm familiar with this method, I'm familiar with that method. And they will occasionally lose the nuance of what's different about how we've tweaked this or how we've tweaked that um, based on that research. And they just sort of think to themselves, oh, I've already done this. Um, because they, they don't realize that the minutia really, really, really matter in terms of effectiveness. And this little tweak that we've done here, this little tweak that we've done there on some breath you know, monitoring meditation or something, is all the difference in the world, you know, is like in those little tweaks, right? Um, and so there was a lot of that initial collection from those measures, and then there was a lot of um, distilling that down and trying to come up with uh, a decision as to whether an original method or a composite method sort of needed to be uh, utilized. And then from there, there were some of these that were notorious for producing, you know, dark night of the soul experiences as the common vernacular. Uh, but these are basically periods where you go, where you have, and in some cases they can last for decades, you know, severe depression um, that are a result of doing um, some of these practices. And so a couple of the practices that wound up making it into the final protocol had that uh, tendency for a very small percentage of people that use them. And obviously this is academic research. You can't have an unethical protocol that you think might make someone depressed for the next 40 years. Uh, and so we had to spend a lot of time figuring out how do you mitigate uh, dark nights? What really causes dark nights? Uh, it took us about a year to figure out that there seemed to be just a few different causes of dark nights. One of them is the degree of well-being that you have before you start using that method. We should probably never use those methods if they're not happy already from a traditional in the mind psychological you know as the as the normal psychology community would define it happy um, or at least on the happier side of the coin don't necessarily have to be happy happy uh, but they certainly shouldn't be unhappy or depressed and of course that's most often who winds up using uh, meditation techniques because they're trying to break out of their unhappiness or whatever right so there's things like that there's the just like um Jeffrey. Yeah. before you continue i just want to ask a question there because i can imagine a number of listeners who uh, besides just wanting to do the finder's course themselves to, you know, get fit with the things that are appropriate, might have had a dark night themselves, might be in one currently, might be now afraid that they're going to go do a uh, meditation training and get fucked up from it. Do you have the research that you've done there available to, for study for people who are interested regarding what the methodologies that created dark nights are, what made people susceptible to them and how to mitigate it? Is that something that is studyable? Yeah, for sure. It's but it's also very easy to. I mean, we can just tell you. You know, we can save people a lot of time. I think you do that, right? The things to mitigate a dark night are actually very simple. It's first of all, make sure you're at a certain level of psychological well-being as measured by gold standard measures, and you can just go to the University of Pennsylvania's Authentic Happiness Center and take the measures there and see how you're doing. And they'll, you know, they score them. They keep them in an account. You can take them multiple times and they keep a history. Um, and so, you know, if it looks like you're not on the happy side of those measures when you take them, probably not such a good idea uh, to throw yourself into those types of methods. And the types of methods that do that are mantra-based methods, 
Um, the noting methods that I mentioned earlier, those absolutely do it. So the two that I was most worried about in the course were those two. Uh, they were mantra-based techniques and they were um, Theravada noting type based techniques. A lot of different Theravada noting. Um, but you know, the, to some degree, the Theravada Buddhists have this sort of built into their path, right? I mean, they're expecting certain dark nights to occur at certain times and things like that. And so these are also far more widely known than, than us. Um, TM is a huge, Transcendental Meditation is a huge meditation program. Millions and millions of people have taken it. Um, and you know, there's plenty of research out there on that for that's a mantra based method and there's plenty of research out there on that for that has produced you know sort of dark night experiences for people and whatnot. there's willoughby britain i don't know if you're familiar with willoughby britain or not but she has a lab at brown um and she basically is the only academic researcher that i know of who's got a dedicated lab to dark nights hmm. dark night experiences and so she's a great research resource that people can go to as well uh it's certainly like not just locked up in our knowledge base or whatever um, so basically increasing your well-being or making sure that you're at a certain level of psychological well-being before you begin practices like the two that I just mentioned. Um, also, what I was about to say before was the second major thing is, um, you know, people don't think about this much, but um, a long, long time ago I was in broadcasting. And in the early part of my broadcasting career, I was in Christian broadcasting because my mom was a Christian missionary TV show host with like a show that was syndicated all over the place. Um, and so that was sort of the crowd that I was hanging out in. I was airing shows on Christian television, which meant you watch the shows to make sure that they're still airing on the TV, right? Um, and one thing that I learned from them was that a surprising number of people have near-death experiences where they go to hell. Um, and as you might imagine, if you're in the Christian side of the fence and you're trying to convince people that hell are real, those people's experiences are very, very useful to have on your show. Um, and so there was like just person after person after person that would go on these shows and they would basically talk about how when they died, they went to hell, like the standard hell experience, you know, the flames and all that. Um, and then they would have other people on, of course, who went to heaven, right, to prove the other side. Uh, but they made sure there was always seemed to be that focus on the hell side. If you think about that as an altered state of consciousness experience and you think about psychedelics as an altered state of consciousness experience and everybody knows you can have a bad trip. Um, right? Everybody talks about good psychedelic experiences, but everybody kind of quietly fears whether or not they have a bad psychedelic experience as well, right? Um, well, guess what? A peak experience, like, a, like another form of conscious experience like this, that's a non-ordinary experience, is like a transcendent state experience, right? Psychedelics are transcendent experiences, near-death experiences are transcendent experiences, so are like your traditional peak, mystical type, whatever experiences. And so you can have a bad one. Like, mystical experiences are not all good. Um, I think, you know, to some degree, maybe books like Revelation and stuff can come out of bad mystical experiences, right? Who knows? Um, so, one thing that you have to mitigate to get around dark night, these things, a bad peak experience, a bad initial transcendent experience will throw you into dark nights like nobody's business. And so the other thing that we really had to engineer into the protocol was a way to give people their first glimpse of these deeper forms of awareness or however you want to think about it, higher states of consciousness or whatever, um, in a very safe way, um, in a way that was more likely, um, if not completely guaranteed, to sort of produce a positive experience of it initially so that they would be biased in a positive direction instead of thrown into a dark night. 
Uh, and I would say those two things are really the core findings around Dark Knights and Dark Knight Engineering. So that wound up doubling the, doubling the length, basically, of the course, of the protocol, because we added an entire section to the beginning of it that's six weeks long, uh, eight sessions in six weeks. And that, the only reason that that's on there is basically to get people to a certain psychological baseline level so that they're ready for the techniques in the second part of the course and to give them a positive, to try to give them a positive glimpse, initial glimpse, if they haven't had one before. And, it, that, you know, it's in a safe environment, done in a safe way, um, that kind of thing. And so, the, as, anyway, as I go on, you can kind of tell that the, the course is really kind of a cocktail between positive psychology methods and cognitive psychology-based methods and then the these, these, you know, amazing techniques that emerged from the research um, on the people who were in persistent non-symbolic experience. Um, and it's all sequenced in a certain way um, and whatnot. And so there were a lot of issues to, to work out. It took a long time. There were a lot of issues to work out to sort of get the protocol to its current form. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's actually beautiful. Um, it's beautiful to be cognizant of the dark night possibility with peak state and mystical state experience and to um, mitigate against that because obviously any method that induces those figures out how to uh, make a story about why that's a good thing um, that you're going through it but uh, maybe not necessary and so I want to just see if the kind of mechanism hypothesis if I can reframe this and tell me if it sounds right to you is that the when you say that you want to see that people are already in a particular level of non-discontent before doing uh, some of those meditation methods. I'm imagining you would also say before they did psychedelics or anything that was going to induce very strong altered state because their meaning-making frameworks are going to travel there with them. And if they are, if they have meaning-making frameworks that make them feel separated from everything, that make them feel like a victim, that make reality suck, then they're going to take it into mystical experiences and the ultimate nature of reality will suck. Um, or if their state, just their emotional state, has a lot of pain in it, then they can access a higher state and still interpret it through that emotional lens. So this is kind of the interface between their psychological development, uh, both kind of cognitive meaning-making and emotional state, with these kind of numinous or peak experiences. And the idea is that the, the meaning-making framework and the state you're in matter as a context for having that experience. Certainly, they seem to, in terms of what we research, and it makes sense to me that they would in those other ones. Yep. Um, but I'm, you know, definitely not an expert on psychedelics and near-death experiences and, uh, and stuff like that. I just observe the parallels and, you know, exchange research information with people who are experts. I I really love that you uh, factored the the. Christian hell near death experiences because I, I also witnessed those and I also witnessed in doing just some kind of preliminary assessment that those people were all in in pretty significant suffering um, before they went into that state. Now, some people were in significant suffering. They have a near death experience and they have a total release of all pain, right? And describe their union with the all, their movement through the white tunnel, whatever it is. So um, we obviously don't have nailed down all of the elements in a one for one, but there is some kind of that it, it makes sense that if someone was having some kind of altered experience where suffering was the origin, it might color the nature of the experience. Yeah, one of my professors at Harvard, Kyle Ben Shahar, who's since gone on to become a really famous happiness positive psychology guy, um, 
he liked to, he was very interested in the notion that he called post-peak experience order. Um, and what <laughs> he noticed is that, you know, let's say you're driving along in Iraq and your Humvee blows up. Um, a certain percentage of those people have, you know, really severe PTSD as a result of that. But apparently, another, it, there's, there's an opposite side of PTSD that he called post-peak experience order, mm -hmm. um, sort of like a positive outcome right. from this type of extremely traumatic thing. And he was really wanting to study that more during his time there. Eventually, you know, he got his PhD and moved on or whatever and became a major, super famous in the public space happiness guy. Um, but that was, I, I never forgot that because it, that's, I've seen that again and again in our research. Right. It seems like there's this positive side of these things that are considered so negative. So like if you're, if you're one of our research subjects and you had, let's just say you were in the Midwest somewhere and you're in the rural Midwest and you have this profound transition, right, to, to some part, to some aspect, category of the experience uh, that is PNSE, um, generally speaking, you don't have a frame of reference for it. And so you often think that you've something very severely wrong, you know, has happened in your psyche. You know, it's you're not miserable, right? I mean, you're not unhappy or whatever, but it's just so different than what you were experiencing before that people will get concerned. And so what do you do when you're concerned about your mental health? You go see a mental health professional, right? And typically what happens is people get, um, people have a mental health professional tell them, you know what, what you're describing sounds a lot like depersonalization and, or derealization disorder, which is a horrible disorder where people are like really super depressed and suicidal. And I mean, it's like the last thing on earth you want to find yourself having. Um, and they're like, but I can't diagnose you as that because you have high well-being. And so I don't have any idea what you are. You know, have a nice day. And that's been the case with a lot of our findings there. You know, like we have findings around disassociation and disassociation is normally considered a very negative thing. Uh, but our version of it certainly isn't very negative. It's amazing. Right. And so I think that there's been a lot of research and a lot of time put into these, into these sort of psychopathological ideas. Um, and there's often these mirrored versions of them that are maybe, you know, some of the most positive states that humans can experience, but just haven't gotten any attention from a research standpoint or haven't been widely known because there's, you know, the NIH isn't handing out money for people that are happy or to be studied or whatever, you know? You said something really important there actually is that the, uh, the whole financial model skews the research in obviously such a dysfunctional way because in order for insurance to cover it, for doctors to be able to use it, it has to be a disease model, et cetera. So um, positive psychology was a nice starting place to look at something else, but still getting research funding is really tricky because there's not going to be ROI on it. Um, so I know that you guys are probably having to be very creative in how you get all this funded and uh, grateful that you are doing that. Nicole, I'm curious to hear, because we haven't actually talked about it much, and you know, I know what a strong tech background you came from. Um, obviously, all of these methods we're talking about are technology, right? We can almost think of them as human software technology in terms of what one is doing with their awareness, with their consciousness, their technology from the Sanskrit techne, right? Like a process of doing things. But, but you're also exploring actual hardware tech um, in terms of... Uh, 
TMS or TDCS or other forms of transcranial stimulation. I know you guys actually know the Hammerhoff folks in transcranial ultrasound as well as like neurofeedback and, you know, app-based methodologies. I don't know if you guys have got much into biochemical technologies, probably a little bit, but um, so the, the TransTech conference and lab is looking at the intersection of the kind of human hardware, human software, you know, work. Can you talk a little bit about what is interesting in that space? Like what is already uh, psychotherapeutically or spiritually interesting and what looks like it might be interesting over the next little while that y'all are looking to help develop? Yeah. Okay. So um, Jeffrey mentioned that now that we have moved into um, or continue to evolve the, uh, while we definitely have our roots in, um, you know, tech, uh, using technology to amplify and enhance the ability for people to um, enter to into PNSE states. The other part, um, there's there's a lot that comes before that as well. So um, today, the definition of transformative technology includes tech that's used to amplify or enhance for mental health, emotional well-being, and human thriving. So the theme of the conference this year is engineering the future of human flourishing. Because if you sort of set back and think about it, um, the future of work, the future of society, and the future of human mind, they're all the same thing. It's all the same thing. It's the same problem everywhere where uh, we have um, sort of a social, emotional health fitness, mental health fitness, human psychological baseline where some people are really struggling. And then on the other, other side, we have people who are, you know, are able and interested in really enhancing and expanding what's possible for the mental and emotional and psychological capacity of humans. And so all of that is within, you know, what we look at at our conference. Some of the things that I am specifically fascinated by, I track, we track 11 categories of technology, um, 11 major areas. Um, I am really intrigued by um, pattern recognition and emotion recognition. Um, if you think about, you know, kind of what's going on today, the way people are thinking about uh, what the ad sellers are doing and the psychological profiling that's used to, to sell us things, um, that data and that profiling could be incredibly useful in helping us individually change ourselves, to choose what it is we want, to know ourselves better, and then to have support that helps us actually change ourselves and evolve um, you know, into what it is we want to be. Behavior change is incredibly hard. Um, and so I'm really interested in, so I'm really excited about um, sort of taking the ability to build those massive psychological data sets, but using it to truly understand um, humanity um, and for the betterment of uh, humanity and for individuals to be able to, um, you know, to understand truly who they are and then to decide where it is they'd like to explore, to have those experiences, um, and then to set a, a target for who it is they'd like to be and then have support to do that. So there's a whole category of things that are coming for that. I'm also really interested in um, the voice assistants. I think there's a lot of potential for voice assistants, not only to be um, compassionate and empathetic to us, the series and Alexas and Cortandas of the world, 
but um, because humans uh, actually are, because we're such great mimics, because we uh, learn from so many sources and can learn from anything, as these, um, as these assistants actually, right now most of them are neural nets or machine learning or, or uh, structured design, I mean structured chats, uh, but as they actually start to become what they're capable of, um, their ability to teach us to be more compassionate to one another because we actually pick up, uh, you know, the, the, the way that we respond and then, you know, feeling a certain way and then going out in the street and having emotional contagion with someone around um, kindness and compassion and empathy, um, collaboration uh, for a more, you know, uh, for a more coherent society. Um, so I think that's really interesting. Um, of course, I love neurostem. Um, I'm really interested in biostem in the sense that, um, like, I'm really intrigued about gut biome for psychological well-being. I am obsessed with the vagus nerve, like obsessed, <laughs> and uh, its potential for you know helping people psychologically. Um, I'm uh, so I think that those are I think those are really interesting spaces. Um, I'm also really interested in um, the spaces that we live in. Um, you haven't really seen a lot of, um, like one of the things that I, I'm expecting to happen in 2019, and well, 2018 and 2019, is that you're going to see a move from, um, you know, I call it moving from steps to states. So right now, a lot of the like wearables or quantified anything or even home IoT systems, it's all about managing things. Um, but I think the next chapter is going to be people subscribing to how they want to feel at home. Um, there's a company that I love right now called Trip, um, and their goal, it's VR, and their goal is for you to subscribe to uh, or for you to decide um, what a state that you want to experience. So you can do calm, you can do happiness. Um, you can also do sadness, which I think is great. They're going to do that um, because there's a full spectrum of human emotion and, and how many of us have felt that sort of beautiful sadness when we think about our first love. Um, it doesn't have to be an issue. It's just like, a, oh, that I learned so much. Um, and so um, they do VR and they pull in your photos, your songs, the things that make you feel that way and create escape around you that creates that. So you can have that experience. So I think that is very interesting. I think, you know, the phones are getting really good at picking up bio data, uh, bio signals. So I can imagine a future where you're driving home in your smart car and it knows that you are a little irritated. So when you get home, the temperature of the house is just so, it smells like lavender. Um, there's a bath waiting for you. And, uh, you know, and there's a little, uh, you know, and, and music is playing that calms you down. Um, so there's, there's so much potential um, and it's accelerating really, really fast. A lot of it driven by AI and machine learning. That's what's really driving a ton of it. Um, and everybody is, you know, starting to, you know, access those. So, um, and I get, you know, Jeffrey mentioned that it was global. I get emails from people all over the world, entrepreneurs everywhere who are building things um, and, you know, looking to solve the problem around stress, anxiety, depression, um, engagement, um, 
you know, um, thriving. I think it's interesting. Last thing I'll say, um, you know, the, um, I'm, a, I'm obsessed also by Yuval Harari and um, all of his work. And I read a, a review of one of his books by Bill Gates. And uh, Bill Gates basically said that he was more worried about purpose, what he called the purpose problem than the automation problem. Because after, you know, we have all this software and robotics, we, and we are doing less doing, we're going to be doing more being. And we really suck at being. Like Buddha knew that. MIT knows that because they've issued a list of what the skills of the future be for a human to be future ready, an employee to be future ready. Um, and they're all skills that have to do with human psychology or they're skills that are the quality of them is mediated by your psychology. Um, and, um, and so that purpose problem is like, you know, once we're in our heads, what do we do? And how do we become good at that? And transformative technology, um, you know, if there was a split, um, there's a whole ton of things that are used to get people to baseline. And then there's a whole category of things um, that are getting people to, you know, what's possible. Okay, so I want to take the first category you mentioned regarding psychoanalytics and the last category regarding environments and put them together and ask you a question. This happens to be the, as we're recording this, it's the same week as the uh, congressional hearings for Facebook, for Cambridge Analytica and like that. And so this is not just a physical environment. We, we recognize that we're not just affected by our physical environments, but the digital environments we spend time in. And obviously we have some digital environments that people spend huge amounts of time in, right? Social networks in particular. And the problem that I think the whole world is getting to see right now that only some people have paid attention to before is, hey, if there's an environment <clears throat> that is harvesting really deep psychoanalytics about us and then being able to uh, use that to affect our attention where they don't have the same goals for us we have for ourselves. We might actually want to spend less time on the social network and they're paid based on time on site. There's something fundamentally fucked up and it's kind of an asymmetric information warfare. Mm -hmm. So what you mentioned was, hey, what if rather than Facebook or Google or some other platform like that, having Cambridge Analytica and those types of tools to influence our attention in the way that they want based on what is in their fiscal interest, et cetera. What if we had control over our own data and we got to have those tools to understand ourselves, to give feedback for our own goals rather than somebody else's. Mm -hmm. And what if we actually created digital environments where there was no agency issue of the environment having a goal of maximizing our time for marketing purposes or clicks or engagement. It was something where we actually got to make sure that the our goal for ourselves, and there was the only goal for which the information was actually being used and optimizing, you could have a very interesting set of possibilities start to emerge. So I'm, I, so I, I want to say one more thing and then you just kind of speak to the whole set of it. So you come from video games, right? And video games are one of the classic sources of addiction now that didn't used to be 50 years ago, but in terms of a hypernormal stimuli, right? Video games are a radical hypernormal stimuli that can downregulate our sensitivity to normal stimuli and do that whole hypernormal curve. And so I'm, I'm curious, as you were like one of the main people helping get video games into the world massively, and we can talk about the good sides of it. We can also talk about the externality side of it. And now you're focused on how do we get like the opposite of hypernormal stimuli? How do we get people to actually have a higher degree of fulfillment by shutting off all stimulus? 
um, you know, in, in meditation like that. What is your thought on, you put all that together, you could imagine a future of social networks that are not, uh, that are protocols, not platforms, right? So they're not owned by someone that's trying to maximize profit by putting your attention in a particular way. What about games similarly? So when you think about the future of digital environments, social networks, games that are evolutionary tools for humans, I have to imagine that you've been thinking about that. Yeah. Um, and well, I, speak to it well, a, bit. a couple of things. Like, first of all, hands down, we've got to get, and I've said this in several of my talks um, and I'm actively exploring it and working with people. We've got to figure out privacy. We've got to figure out ethics. We've got to figure out etiquette, you know, um, like etiquette is a big part of this. And what I mean by that is like, you think about, there's still people who smoke, but when they smoke, they go outside and they walk down the street there's certain, like there's an etiquette around it that didn't exist even 20 years ago. So we have to have an etiquette around it. And then the other thing that I like to remind people about is that like this whole, like, like having a whole philosophy based on this is like having a whole philosophy uh, about what's good and what's bad uh, based on the stone wheel. Or if, you know, it's like a fast food. If the only thing you've ever had is fast food and you've never had a mom's slow cooked meal, and you would think that it's all fast food. Like that is the, like that encompasses the category of food. And so most of the technology that we have, because it was designed for efficiency, productivity, um, and, you know, and there had been a, there's been a whole bunch of unintended consequences. It's all fast food. So what's great about this moment is that we get to say now, you know, one, we're, we're going to, get past the stone wheel and start working on the Pirelli tires. And we're going to bake in the privacy, bake in the ethics, start to think about etiquette um, and, you know, and make it work for us because technology is not deterministic. Like we design it. So let's design it better. So that's the first part. So that's like, I'm, I come down hard on that because I believe strongly in it because I think there's so much potential that can come from the types of things that we've described, that it is worth the effort to address privacy, ethics, and et etiquette. Um, and there's some interesting things on, um, there's a guy named Joe Edelman, who is just a genius, I think, on metrics, and uh, was the person who gave me hope when I first started reading his essays about how to move from simple maximizing, which is what all this fast food tech is, to values-based maximizing, which is your tech is on your side, um, and what does that look like and, and how are things measured? Because any company, you know, as you know, as a CEO, it's like, and as a founder, you are, you are what you measure. Um, so that's part one. Part two, um, I, you know, it, this probably is not a surprise, but um, I love games. I think games are absolutely amazing. And I think that, and, you know, you also have to remember that, you know, I, spend a significant amount of time on the back end of World of Warcraft, where I actually saw um, communities, um, you know, relationships, um, you know, people having, um, you know, deep experiences with one another. So one of the things where I differ from other people, too, is that I believe that um, if a relationship makes you feel loved, supported, heard, seen, valued, it doesn't matter to me if it never is in the flesh. 
Like it to me is a valid relationship. And I think it's a bias that many people have, often older, where they think that, you know, flesh and bone is the only way to have a relationship. Um, and so, but that being said, like one of the things I'm really excited about is um, I'm really interested in hyper-realistic avatars um, because I think the flat wall of a Facebook screen, it, it allows people to like screed at each other because you don't get the social emotional cue that you've hurt someone's feelings. People will say stuff on a Facebook wall that they would never say in person. And so when we actually get into hyper-realistic avatars in digital spaces, where when I say something that hurts your feelings, I can see it um, because your face is mapped to your avatar, um, then that's going to be, that, that I think will take us back to, you know, having more of that. I just, last week I was with Philip Rossdale in High Fidelity. Um, in, uh, it's uh, basically Second Life in VR. And they are doing hyper-realistic avatars that pick up your facial expressions. And so we were hanging out in Nefertiti's tomb, like scooting around and talking. And it was the first time in VR that I was like, I would totally hang out in this. Um, so, I, so, so I believe that digital relationships are completely valid relationships. I don't believe that they're the only relationships. Um, and so I think, you know, the path for the future really includes uh, what is called, um, or what I talk about as amplification, like losing, using technology to amplify. So I'll give you an example. Um, if you look at all of the people, you look at the estimates for uh, the requirement or the people who are going to need mental health support around the world, and mental health issues are accelerating globally. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the, the things that we no longer trust the way we did. So religion, governments, media, you know, there's like everything's in flux. We're in the crunch right now. And so, um, so, you know, there's that plus a bunch of other things that are, you know, around the world, across cultures, cohorts, countries, mental health issues are, are off the charts, accelerating quickly. Uh, stress in China is out of control. And then you look at the number of people who are trained uh, in schools to support these people. The gap between the trained number of people and the need, you would have, you would have people, you would have to fill schools for hundreds of years to reach the gap. If we have the insistence that all um, mental, emotional, and psychological support uh, has to be one-to-one -one in the flesh, human-to-human. Uh, -human. So there's some really great programs out there, Joyable, uh, does social anxiety, um, where people are using a human who is amplified by technology to support um, you know, large numbers of people. I mentioned that because I think that sort of suggests what the way forward is, um, because we've got this data. It tells us a lot about ourselves. Um, and the interfaces are not good yet for how we get that data surfaced to us. Because it's, if it's surfaced to us as stats and stats, it's not going to be useful. But when it's surfaced to us in a way that we can really get insights about ourselves, and then when we're amplified by things that capture what our values are, um, the power for that to take humanity into the next iteration 
So I am not a transhumanist. I have no interest in uploading my consciousness um, because this, like this, we haven't maxed it out yet. Like there's so much more. So like the work that Jeffrey and I are doing, um, like what is the Roger Bannister moment for human psychology at scale? You know, what is the Roger, Roger Bannister moment for human mental and emotional capacity at scale? And then, you know, everything that you guys are doing, um, you know, on the biological level, also tied to psychology at scale. So those humans are within our reach. And that is really interesting. And we're going to be using technology. So, you know, I think the biggest thing is that people have to not be afraid. And, and I'm saying, and I know you're not because I've read your writing. Um, you know, people have to not be afraid. They have to lean into the design process. They have to know that it's not deterministic. They got to get in there and make sure that their values are taken into consideration, whether they're yoga teachers, you know, or preschool teachers or like whoever, it's like get in the game um, so we can design this future together. Um, and I think game environments are really engaging. Um, and I think that that can be really used for good. Um, the last thing I'll say on that is that a lot of people, when they think about this stuff, they say they worry about um, becoming dependent on technology to sort of like feel their embodiment. But that is also a design choice, right? Like we can design them to be training wheels. So a uh, historical example of that uh, for World of Warcraft China, we had um, a system in place. It was called the anti-addiction system. Um, it was a rough translation from Chinese. But after a certain number of hours, you could still play, but you, you didn't get more experience points. So that way we weren't being everyone's mama. You know, people could choose to do what they wanted to do. But the thing that they really like hanging out, um, they could still be in the world, but it just didn't give them the same incentives. Or, or um, the incentive system for gaining experience points was no longer in place. Because there were a whole bunch of people who would go into World of Warcraft and fish. Because like, we had lakes with fish. And they would go in and fish and use it as a digital chat room. For those people not having valid life experiences, they were talking to people and they stayed there over the limit and they didn't care about experience points. They were there to chat and fish. And so those are the types of experiences that we have, you know, that we can look forward to, um, but just better. Mm -hmm. um, I know we've got to wrap up here soon. I have one more question for you since uh, you, since you mentioned it, you said you're obsessed with the vagus nerve and I actually want to do a whole <laughs> show on, uh, the vagus nerve and polyvagal theory and like that soon, but just very brief, oh, yay. just the, the briefest intro on why the vagus nerve would be something to be obsessed about and what some introductory things people can do to assess and or work with vagal health. Do you have something you want to share? Well, I mean, <laughs> the female orgasm runs up the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that caught my attention. Um, and then um, people are using it for, um, you know, um, the first F or an FDA approved device for migraines um, that does vagal nerve stimulation just came out. Um, and there's just a lot of interesting things. Um, and so I'm, I'm not a super expert on it. Um, but I'm tracking companies 
and looking for companies that are um, developing technology around it because I think it has a great deal of potential just on what I've read about um, mm -hmm. the influence it has on human psychology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some, because it is such a unique branch of the peripheral nervous system and, um, you know, sympathetic, parasympathetic interface, part of the enteric nervous system, it uh, definitely, we can assess a lot about human physiology and affect a lot about human physiology. For those listeners who are interested, the uh, book called Polyvagal Theory is a very interesting one on some of the psychology associated. There's some great blogs now because Dave Asprey and many people have come out on you know how to use cold therapy, how to use uh, e-stem technologies and CES technologies to affect vagus nerve. It's called but, Polyvagal? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to read that. Um, but we'll... Uh, yeah, we'll come back and do a, uh, a deep dive here. So I'm curious if, Jeffrey, you said that there are a few times a year that you offer the finders course. I'm imagining that this can be done remotely. People don't have to be there in the Bay Area. How does someone, f how does someone find out more? When is it offered? Uh, what does it take to get involved? It's about to be transitioned to um, one of my, basically my senior PhD student who has been working on her dissertation on this for a long time now. And at that point, it's gonna run a lot more regularly. Prior to that, it ran basically whenever we had a spare minute uh, or whenever we really needed some new batch of data from a certain direction uh, to answer some question that remained open or something like that. So I think pretty soon it's gonna be an every other month kind of thing. Um, right now they can go to uh, finderscourse.com uh, the research stuff is available at nonsymbolic.org. Um, and so, yeah, it's very easy to participate. It's crowdsourced and crowdfunded because there's no money available for this type of research, basically. We just have charged people to go through the protocol. And uh, that's been fantastic. You know, it's basically enabled the whole shebang. It's enabled the whole re research. Now, let me, let me go, let me answer another question that you asked, Nicole, and it's around uh, stimulation stuff. Um, certainly the vagal stuff is a, is a comer, though I would caution people on the vagal stuff at the moment. Um, certainly Porges' theory and the polyvagal stuff and whatnot has been out there for a long, long time. Um, and there's been a lot of amazing medical stuff done, you know, where you have an implant and they wrap the wire around the nerve and you have a, you know, a box implanted under your skin and um, all of that. And there's some truly miracle type stuff. For epilepsy in particular. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Incredible stuff. Um, and actually, there's a great, probably three rooms over from where I'm sitting right now is um, this fantastic researcher who's either about to leave, who's about to, I think, go to another leading institution. And, and the decision that he's trying to make is the degree to which he can follow the vagal nerve stuff versus the TMS stuff or the TBCS, TACS stuff or the ultrasound stuff or the other stuff that he's been involved with. Um, and, you know, if he goes in one direction, it's kind of the more traditional STEM stuff. If he goes in a, which, but a much more prestigious institution, uh, one of the top probably five institutions. Um, but if he goes in another direction, he can still play around with the vagal nerve and get paid for it. Um, and he's really, really interested <laughs> in the vagal nerve. It's like really holding his interest. And so you have incredibly talented people like him. Uh, just as an example, I don't want to out him because you know you're in the middle of this decision process or whatever. Um, but you have really, really 
talented people like this who can who are fueling everybody's sort of fueling the same stuff you know people who are into stem or into all kinds of stem they're generally not into one kind of stem right and so there's not that many of them there's a relatively handful of people that are out there that are really hardcore and awesome and brilliant and into stem and they're kind of happy to pick and choose between the different stems and the different opportunities and um whatnot that are that are out there so it's it's that the whole it's this whole stem place and the whole vagus nerve stuff it's all pretty early it's all pretty early days uh, for that i agree i'm very excited about it uh, but then i think you have a technology that's that's a lot more accessible and a lot more proven like um for instance if you think about um the v light which is a company in canada right uh run by a guy named lou lim uh, it's it's a fence, it's an amazing device. He has two publicly devices as we make this. Um, you know, one of which stimulates your brain with light at 10 hertz, and another one which stimulates your brain at 40 hertz. And um, you know, I, I have to be careful not to out some of the research before it's fully published or whatever else. But I mean, the findings on dementia and Alzheimer's and whatever are kind of incredible. Um, and they're 40 hertz unit as an example. Um, there, I mean, we were talking about the ability to reduce inflammation in the brain with a relatively short session of light every day. I mean, can you even imagine the research implications of that? I, there are people here at the University of New Mexico doing research on it. There are people all over the place doing research on this. And they're all doing it different, you know, some cognitive stuff, cognitive processing stuff, motor processing stuff. It's not just you know, the headline grabbers are the things like Alzheimer's, right? Um, but really, you know, you have a very simple, relatively cheap technology that you can put on your head and that radically reduces brain inflammation. I mean, the, that affects everything. Right? I mean, that's really just an incredible technology. And it's here today. It's not something that, you know, a guy two doors down is trying to think of where he wants to go so that 10 years from now, maybe we'll have a product that somebody, you know, can buy that does something that's very proven, you know, in X, Y, or Z. And so uh, this whole STEM space, I think, is a very interesting space because it's hard to tell what's real in a lot of it with the TACS and the TVCS stuff. There's a lot of contentious debate around it at an academic level. There's a lot of people doing stuff that's probably not so smart out at a public level um, in terms of how it, things can affect your brain and things like that. But also think about Modius, right? which was this Kickstarter uh, or Indiegogo, I don't remember which one, right? And they basically, I think they're out of where you are, they're in San Diego, pretty, you're in San Diego still, right? Um, and so, you know, like a guy at UCSD um, who basically somehow hypothesized his way to or discovered that if you put half a, if you basically put 0.5 hertz, you know, bilaterally with TACS on your mastoid, um, it affects your sort of vestibular system in a certain way that is probably going to make you lose weight. Um, I mean, that's kind of incredible, right? Because it's, I mean, half a hertz is good for a lot of stuff. Like you can do a lot of stuff with half a hertz. That's kind of an uncharted territory, but the part that is charted looks pretty interesting just from a cognitive effect standpoint and whatnot, right? Uh, but you can go buy this thing tomorrow. I actually had one of these sent to me uh, at the TransTech lab, and I used it for a week, and I lost 10 pounds. Uh, which is incredible to me, right? I just I, I didn't change anything. I didn't walk more. I didn't eat less cake. Um, you know, I didn't have any lifestyle change. I just put this thing on my mastoid for, you know, an hour. It's a long, long brainstem session. Most brainstem sessions don't earn when you're an hour. Um, and so anyway, there's so much stuff going on. And what I think is going to be interesting is when these things start combining. 
right? So I, what if I, you know, I'm getting a 0.5 hertz psychological benefit from the Modius, right? But I'm doing it to lose the 10 pounds or whatever, right? And so it's these combinations. I don't think people are likely to zap their brain to get slightly better cognitive performance anytime soon. I mean, there's a hardcore sort of fringe and, and you know, Dave's crowd, Dave Asprey's crowd or whoever, but they're definitely not mainstream America, right? I mean, mainstream America is not thinking to themselves, where can I stick these electrodes that'll get me three more IQ points or whatever. Um, but they're definitely thinking, how can I lose 10 pounds before the summer for my swimsuit season, right? And so I think there's a lot of potential for those of us in this space to think about in terms of how we stack and layer benefits that we might not otherwise focus on. Like, you know, TransTech would not have anything to do with unless it was morbid weight loss, you know, morbidly obese weight loss or something like that, where it really affects, profoundly affected your mood and your depression or something like that. Uh, it wouldn't really have much to do with weight loss from a TransTech standpoint, right? But boy, you know, I, I don't see any reason that it has to be 0.5 hertz for the weight loss thing. They're just going for a certain vestibular effect, which means that probably you could sell people a weight loss device that did all kinds of stuff to them cognitively and emotionally in terms of benefits. And there's going to be lots and lots and lots. This is just sort of a first shot across the bow. There's going to be lots and lots of things uh, that come out like this that we really have the opportunity to get more mainstream adoption without it being the type of sort of wonky people who are on and listening to podcasts like this and that are on the, the absolute bleeding edge fringe um, of where this is all going. And so I think that's, you know, it's, it's, it's good to keep in mind what's real now, what's not real, what's available, what's not available, but, and also, you know, more, more or less likely adoption methods and stuff like that from when you, when you think about these standard type of technologies. Yeah, that's a really great point. That's a really great point. You're so awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, like we, I would think a lot about creative, I mean, I think a lot about transformative collisions. Um, and, you know, Jeffrey just described a really great example of a transformative collision because if at the end of the day, the, you know, conscious world changing people only talk to the conscious world changing people, then nothing happens. Like nothing happens. Um, so we've got to get these products. Uh, we've got to get um, we've got to get transformative experiences and transformative products out to people that are not in our networks. Um, and so, like one of the things that um, just launched last week that uh, we're pretty proud of um, is a meditation fitness program um, that is with a partner called Power Music, which is one of the top three providers of fitness choreography instruction for fitness professionals and um, DIMS. And um, it is a, it's a combination of, it was, I saw the, the a study in nature at the beginning of January of 2016 that showed a combination between meditation and cardio. So not yoga, but cardio um, had a dramatic effect on mood for people who were depressed. It caused 40% um, reduction in depressive symptoms. And for people who are not depressed, it makes them feel really awesome. And so if you think about the number one reason why people don't meditate is that they don't have enough time. This number two is that they don't know how. And number three is that it doesn't work for them. Well, we understand everything about fit. Um, don't have time combining it into a fitness class that you take at the gym in the hour that you've already allocated um, handles that objection. Um, and instruction, you know, that's, that's fairly straightforward. Um, and so we're really excited about this product. And 
Um, so far, it's like doing really well. Um, and everyone who takes it wants to take it again, or we have a lot of repeats. Um, and so that's a good example of, um, you know, we've got to get out of, you know, transformative communities have got to get out of only talking to transformative communities. And we have to really think about like, how do we stack things, combine things um, that we reach, so we reach wider audiences, because there's seven and a half billion people on the planet. And um, this worldwide awakening is going to take Jedis everywhere, um, you know, who are, you know, doing the same thing. Something I really appreciate about what you guys are doing is that you're both working on the cutting edge of advancing the technologies of meditation themselves uh, from looking at how to avoid dark nights to get right fits uh, for people to incorporate, you know, neurotech, as well as actually looking at how to do the translational popularization and say, how can we get this available to everybody? And not that many groups that are doing both of those things simultaneously. And there's a, if you're not working at the cutting edge of it and you're just doing the popularization, there's probably integrity loss that occurs. Um, so I love that. It was wonderful to have you both here. I know we've got to wrap up. Um, thank you for coming and for sharing all that you did. And particularly, actually, thank you for the you know pioneering work in being able to make transformative technologies actually available to a lot more people and with a much higher return rate on them getting positive experiences and not negative experiences. That's tremendous. And uh, just say again, and we'll put them in the show notes, the the couple websites that people can go if they want the finders course, that's finderscourse.com. Yeah, it's um, finders course, exactly how it sounds like finders course. Um, and uh, the next and uh, .com. And then the next course, is uh, on uh, May May nineteenth, um, and that that will be the that will be the last Jeffrey course. So, and <clears throat> and then the other website was um, the con. Oh, uh, sorry, Jeffrey, say consymbolic.org is where the research can be found. Great. Patients and stuff, and TTConf is the TransTech conference. TransTech. .org is the TransTech Lab. And Daniel, let me also thank you. You know, you're in this TransTech space up to your eyeballs. You created an incredible product in Qualia that just, you know, has all these, um, it, was, it was so groundbreaking. I, I'm sure people know this, but I don't know, because probably you're not out there tooting your own horn on your own podcast or whatever. But it was one of the first things that really, I mean, you combined so much stuff that previously people had so many bottles on their counters. <laughs> You know, trying to take that stuff every day. I have I have an R I have two RAs in my lab who are ridiculously grateful for your because they had that counter full of endless pill bottles and were running on the treadmill trying to keep up with research themselves, you know, to find the supplement space and everything else. I think you have a great example in Qualia of these TransTech products because it's widely accessible to anybody. They don't have to know much to use it. You know, they're relying on your expertise. I mean, it's, it's that collision. You're part of that collision that Nicole was talking about. Thank you, Jeffrey. I, I appreciate that. Um, you, you're a researcher that I think is going to be taking over the Finders course, uh, worked on putting together. I'm just sharing this for the audience. We were going to do a Finders course uh, and have a control group of people who are on Quali and see what that did, but uh, we just didn't get the logistics of it together, but that would still be really fun to do because the collision between things like working on the biochemistry and working on the, you know, cognitive frames and the 
you know, psychospiritual experiences and then the neurostim, there really can be, if you get it right, synergistic returns from any of those categories of tech by themselves. And like for us, that's what we found in the biochem is even just understanding the synergy of multiple different mechanisms together and different parts of the same pathway is radically different in terms of being able to uh, ameliorate side effects and increase long-term uh, positive effects. So, yep, it's uh, it's fun too that we get to have this collision. Uh, and so I look forward to more. Right on, us too. Thank you both. More soon. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Collective Insights. For the full show notes on this episode and for more great interviews, visit us at neurohacker.com slash collective insights. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Want to learn a better strategy for mental well-being? We designed a beautifully illustrated 32-page guide integrating care for your mind, brain, body, and environment into a balanced approach for a better life. Download the foundational guide to neurohacking at neurohacker.com backslash guide.